We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show brought to you from Hobart on Edge Radio, the premium youth station in Tasmania. This is our first show for 2020, and what could we cover other than the bushfires, given the catastrophic bushfires we've seen across Australia, particularly affecting Victoria and New South Wales? So we're joined in studio by Dr Grant Williamson, who's a research fellow in landscape ecology and spatial science at the University of Tasmania. And my name's Neve Chapman. I'm joined by my co-host, Kelsey Pickard. So, Kelsey, do you want to kick us off with what we're talking about today? Yeah, sure. Grant, it might be good to start off with explaining a little bit about how bushfires might be caused. So I guess there's the issue of what ignites bushfires, which is one of the things we're interested in when we study bushfires. A good framework to use is something we call the four-switch model, which is the idea that you need four conditions to be met for a fire to start. One of them is you need something to burn, you need some sort of fuel. You need that fuel to be dry, so it's actually available. You need suitable weather to carry the fire, to move the fire and for, the, for it to happen. And you need a source of ignition. So there's actually four different things um, we're looking at. And ignition is just one of those. Obviously, there's been some debate about the causes of these fires, but we have to take into account all those four switches being on. Um, and that's where it starts to get connected to the state of the fuel and the state of the climate that's driven the fires this year. Yeah, so you touched on a little bit about what might have started the fires. So there's quite a lot of controversy in the media and on Twitter and things about whether there's some arson-related um, fires happening. Look, there have been some fires which have been lit by arson. Um, there always are. Uh, the majority of fires are usually human-related. Uh, it's often accidental. It's people driving their car over dry grass. It's people using grinders on hot days. It's escape campfires. Um, so... Human-caused fires don't just come down to arson. Um, we also have lightning, which has actually been very important in the current set of fires we've had. Um, certainly all the fires across Victoria, through the Alps and through Gippsland, um, none of those related to arson. Lightning has been a big factor there. Lightning was a factor uh, in the fires that burnt um, in the Blue Mountains around Sydney. The fires we've had in Tasmania recently, over the last few weeks, such as the Pelham fire north of Hobart, were started by lightning as well. Um, so there's a variety of causes. You can't put it down just to arson. Arson is always present. Um, it's something which doesn't change a huge amount. It's just a low-level thing that's back there. But fires, yeah, they do have other causes. So did you say that the leading cause was humans started either arson or by accident? Yes. And yeah. then it's, you know, natural things like dry lightning? Uh, in Australia, in southern Australia, yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, so you said that there's the three other kind of factors that contribute to the causes of bushfires. Um, do they contribute to how catastrophic a bushfire is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the ignition doesn't the ignition event itself doesn't do much to establish whether the fire is a catastrophic fire or a minor fire. Uh, the main thing is simply how the weather conditions, how much fuel is there to burn. Um, those are the things which create the ca catastrophic wildfire conditions, and in particular the sort of weather you're experiencing on the day. Um, when you have extremely high temperatures, extremely low humidities, when you have um, very high wind speeds, um, you very quickly get a ramping up of the fire intensity um, to the point where it just can't be controlled. Um, it's impossible to stop this sort of fire. Um, firefighters fall back to trying to defend communities and get people out of there. 
Um, but once you start getting those extreme weather conditions, um, fire essentially becomes uncontrollable. Um, and that's what we've seen a number of times over the last few months. So is there nothing we can do when a fire starts to try and prevent it from becoming catastrophic? Uh, look, it's very difficult. Yeah, if you can get in front of it um, before those weather conditions come um, with some of the firefighting techniques we have now, such as um, aerial water bombing and so forth, then you can, then you can help protect communities. Um, but once you get a serious uh, extreme fire conditions where you're getting very high rates of spread, where you're getting um, spotting over large distances, uh, spotting, by the way, is a process where um, particles of fuel, leaves and bark are actually blown in the wind ahead of the fire and can start new spot fires ahead of it. Once you've got those sort of conditions going on, there's very little you can do to control it and people just have to get out of the way. So is the real kind of necessity from a prevention perspective what we do when we have like the non-bushfire season, like backburning seems to have featured a lot in debate around the current bushfire crisis. Yeah. Um, are those the types of preventative measures that we can do? Because really if the weather is going against you to such an extent that it's going to be catastrophic, we're kind of on the back foot. Yeah, look, and I've, those measures, hazard reduction burning during the, during the spring and autumn when it's possible, um, it is an important tool we have. Um, it's not a panacea. Uh, there's also been a lot of debate I've seen over the last few weeks about has enough hazard reduction be burning been done? Are people stopping it being done? Um, the fact is no one stopped it being done. All states um, have uh, hazard reduction burning programs. This has increased uh, since the Black Saturday fires in 2009 in Victoria. Um, so this is being done, but it's just one tool and it's not perfect. We've seen that extreme fires... In, in extreme weather conditions, will burn across areas which have been um, undergone hazard reduction burning. Um, hazard reduction methodology is it can slow down fires under mild conditions, it can reduce their intensity, but once you get really hot, dry, windy weather, it doesn't matter much, fires will burn right through them anyway. anyway. Um, so it's something that's useful to do and it's uh, an important part of how we manage our forests. It's not going to stop the fires. And I think the other issue is not all forests can be treated. Um, wet eucalypt forests, which we have a lot of here in Tasmania, which they have in Victoria and New South Wales as well, um, which are very dense, have very high fuel loads, are essentially unburnable during the spring and autumn because they're so wet. Um, you can't really treat them. You can't. It's very, very, very difficult to do hazard reduction burning in those forests anyway. So there's not much that can be done there. I suppose one question that I would have would be, as a scientist specialising in this area, does it pose like new questions to deal with this kind of level of catastrophic bushfires that haven't really been anticipated or challenges for even conducting research into this area? Oh, absolutely. Um, we don't have much information about how fire behaves under these conditions. Um, the sort of... We do fire behaviour modelling in Australia. Um, fire agencies use computer models um, to predict where a fire is going to spread based on the weather conditions. Um, they can use that to generate warnings for towns that may be in the fire's path and so forth. Uh, and those models are based on experiments, basically. Researchers have gone out, burnt bits of forest under different weather conditions, measured what has happened, how quickly the fire has spread. Uh, and that's the basis of these models. But as you can imagine, you can't go and light fires uh, experimentally on catastrophic fire weather days. And there's some new tools coming online constantly that allow us to do that in terms of um, detecting fire from satellites and from aircraft, um, trying to gather whatever information we can during these events to, to help improve our models. That was Grant Williamson from the University of Tasmania. Join us in just a moment. We'll be talking to another expert in the area about how climate change is contributing to bushfire risk. 
you're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking about climate change and bushfire risk. We're joined in studio by myself, Neve Chapman, and Kelsey Pickard, a fellow um, PhD student at the University of Tasmania, and Dr. Beck Harris, who's a lecturer in climatology with research in conservation management and climate change at the University of Tasmania. Now, in our last segment, Beck, we heard from Dr. Grant Williamson that the evidence shows us that longitudinally or over a long period of time, bushfires have been traditionally started by humans, or be that accidentally or by arson. But have we noticed a change in the way bushfires have started over the last couple of years, either you know the catastrophic fires in Tasmania last year or the bushfire crisis we're experiencing in New South Wales and Victoria this year? Yeah, there's been an, an awful lot of uh, debate about that, obviously. Um, and there's a few things feeding into that, like um, Grant pointed out earlier. Um, we've definitely seen a shift from um, arson ignited fires um, towards li- dry lightning fires in this this season and in 2019 in uh, Tasmania. So my understanding is that less than 1% of the current fires were caused by arson. Um, so what's happened is that many, many of them are being ignited by dry lightning. And while there's a lot of anecdotal um, stories about the fact that dry lightning has changed um, and become more frequent. Uh, A lot of our research suggests that that might not be the case. Um, But what is happening is that when dry lightning happens, it's hitting bone dry ground. And that's due to um, an increasingly dry, hotter um, climate. Is dry lightning just when it occurs in like a storm where there's no rain or what is dry lightning? Pretty much, I think. Yeah. Okay, cool. I thought that was a really obvious question. That's fascinating. So um, you're essentially saying that not only are we having dry lightning, but it's hitting dry land. And that's what's causing the increase in ignition, not the increase in dry lightning. Um, And the increasingly dry land is very strongly driven by climate change. So what evidence suggests that there's a link between the changing climate and bushfire risk? Uh, So there's plenty of evidence looking in and into the past and it's actually quite difficult to study bushfire um, occurrence because it's such a variable thing and we live in a country where we do have bushfires um, as a natural part of the, our climate um, but overwhelmingly all of the, re, um, the the sort of evidence is starting to, to stack up that we're having these massive fires across very vast parts of the country that are in forests that traditionally or, or historically wouldn't even really be burning. Um, over Australia we've had an increase of about 1.2 degrees Celsius, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's been, it's enough that we're actually starting to see these sorts of extreme events. I always think it's funny when people say, oh, one to two degrees, that's not very much. So I'm like, well, as a human body, if you Absolutely. were to increase one or two degrees, you'd feel very uncomfortable. And when you start putting that on the, the upper limit, which is sort of a physiological limit that might be in the, the 40s, yeah, we're hitting those sorts of limits now. Definitely. So I suppose a different way to look at that would be, so we've got some evidence that shows trends over time that temperatures are changing and then subsequently those changes those changes elevating causes our climate, so our soil and the air even, to be drier um, or to have changed compared to what we previously had. So is that essentially climate change because we can see that this is continually increasing over time? Yeah, so we can see it in relation to... 800,000 year records in the observations so we can you know un- unequivocally link the temperature rises to the rises in carbon dioxide that have happened over that that sort of very long time period we have seen the ups and downs in the historical record and we've seen an incredibly rapid increase in the last 50 years um, which is far greater than any other natural variability that we've seen um, in that 800,000 time scale um, 
so we and and now we're tracking it more and more closely um, around the world at much uh, finer scales, and we're also. The, the sort of changes that we're seeing now are totally in line with the theory and the physical response that we'd expect in the in the global climate system. So as carbon dioxide increases, temperatures increase, we start to see more extreme weather events, we start to see changes between the ocean and the atmosphere. And on a global scale, that's all totally physically consistent with the science. So there's evidence that the change in climate that we're experiencing now is linked to fossil fuel use? Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. And again, you just look at those paleo records, those really long historical records of carbon dioxide in the Earth, um, in the Earth's atmosphere, and you can see the glacial and the interglacial periods over that very long period. And the the only way that you can make those um, temperatures rise in, the, in a consistent way is by including um, carbon dioxide. So um, one way that they have done these sort of tests, they're called attribution um, experiments, and they run models where they pull out the human carbon dioxide that we've put in since the Industrial Revolution. And um, there is no way that you can get the temperature increases um, in the models without that those human forces. So again, it's the science is unequivocal that, um, that the climate change is happening and that it's anthropogenically caused. And this climate change, does it is there evidence that it's directly affecting the bushfire seasons that we're experiencing now? I think it's really difficult to directly attribute one event to climate change. Um, there will be, I'm sure there will be attempts. Um, there's a bit of a lag between a bad bushfire season and when the experiments will be done, but I'm 100% sure that there will be plenty of people doing it. Um, and that's why sometimes you hear the media misquoting climate scientists when they, when they can't say, yes, this is directly caused 100% by climate change. Um, there's certainly um, indirect evidence to suggest that it's directly linked, but it's entirely consistent with everything we expect under a changing climate. It's like you say that we can look back you know, millions and billions of years and we can see that there are changes in the climate, an accelerated rate of climate change than what we've seen in the past. Absolutely. And, and, and a rate that has not actually ever been seen before in the observational record. And the same can be said for bushfires. Yes, we've always had them, but no, we have not always had them this early in the year, um, for this long going across the year, for this extent of Australia burning at the same time. Um, in fact, this is the first year that we've got both hemispheres burning at the same time. You know, California was burning at the same time as Australia started burning at a really early part of our summer, and that's unprecedented. So the, the, the frequency that we're seeing things, uh, bushfires return, the intensity, the severity and the, um, the area that it's being covered um, and in new areas that used not to burn is, is absolutely unprecedented. I guess it's also a concern that such a large amount of bush is burning, which is again releasing a bunch of carbon into the atmosphere. Mm. So it's not really helping the whole situation, having all these fires happening at the same time. No, there are different um, feedbacks that are happening in the climate system. Some of them are actually negative. So with you, you know, they were talking about the massive smoke plume that has moved around the world. That's actually a bit of a, that would have a slight cooling effect. Um, but when you look at the, the, the millions of, of hectares of, of forest that have burnt, then that would definitely be a positive um, feedback effect, um, increasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And also decreasing the capacity to release oxygen, oxygen and uptake carbon dioxide as trees naturally do as well, I'm assuming. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you. That was Dr. Beck Harris from the University of Tasmania, who's going to join us in our next section as well as we welcome back Dr. Grant Williamson to talk about some of the future implications.
are listening to That's What I Call Science on Edge Radio. And we're talking about climate change and bushfire risk. So we've had a segment from Dr. Beck Harris and Dr. Grant Williamson from the University of Tasmania. And now they're both with us while we talk about really what this means for the future, how we put it all into context for future implications. My name's Neve Chapman. I'm joined with Kelsey Picard. Um, so is this the new normal in Australia? I think... Uh, that that phrase, the new normal, gets thrown around a lot. I know that the Tasmanian Fire Service at the conference last year rejected that phrase um, and said that actually the climate is now constantly changing. We're on a trajectory. There isn't a normal anymore. We're constantly moving to something different. Um, definitely the way things were in the past has gone. Knowing that the climate's going to keep changing and the bushfire ecology conditions are going to keep changing, like you mentioned, what kind of strategies can be implemented to reduce future catastrophic bushfires in Australia? I think uh, reducing bushfires themselves is going to be extremely difficult. Uh, I think maybe what we have to focus on is how we as humans live in that environment, how we design our communities, how we design our homes, where we're actually living. You know, a lot of suggestions have been thrown about about do we need to move the summer school holidays because summer isn't a time to have kids at home anymore. Um, so changes in society, I think, about the, are about the best we can do. It's very difficult to imagine what we can do to change things in, the nat- in nature um, to combat this or to fight against it. And I think the way of moving forward is to stop these um, political fights that are being waged at the moment. And I think this idea that somehow we're in control of this, we have to get used to the fact that we're not. Um, and as I agree with Grant wholeheartedly, that um, we have to look at real ways of adapting to a totally um, an increasing fire risk. Hazard reduction burning is not going to be the answer alone. So what? Oh, except we do need to reduce our carbon emissions. Um, you know, that is the one thing that is in our control. Yes. We do need to reduce our carbon em- emissions as soon as possible um, because otherwise this really will just become it more and more frequent and more and more widespread. So what are the ways that carbon emissions can actually be reduced? Uh, well, well, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, released a really interesting report in 2019 which... Um, It's called the 1.5 degree report and that's the one, you know, you might hear people say we've got 10 or 12 years to really get this under control and that came from that report, um, which is from a a global um, network of of scientists. Um, And so they have, you know, quite detailed ways, but the top ones are um, reducing fossil fuels. Um, Coal has to stay in the ground, so we have to stop new, new coal mines. Um, and we can do that by making some personal choices, but ultimately we have to do that at the level of our, our political leaders at a, at a, at a national level. And, and then there are other, op- other options like um, kelp forests um, trying to pull carbon into the oceans. Um, but certainly the thing that we should be doing as a, as a country is reducing our fossil fuels and sh- switching towards more renewable energy sources. Do you see any strategies that could be implemented, Grant, into specifically addressing bushfires in the future what kind of strategies could we implement or learnings from maybe this season's bushfire crisis or or even the bushfires that happened in Tasmania yeah I think uh, as I said we have to think about how we design our communities um, it's ob- obviously very popular um, in Australia uh, as around the world particularly here in Tasmania in fact for people to live close to the bush for people to have bush blocks our suburbs are encroaching further and further uh, into heavily vegetated areas that's a dangerous environment to be, to be in, and it's increasingly dangerous. We have to assess whether, whether we allow that, whether moving into those areas necessitates a lot of additional land clearing around the communities. Um, certainly hazard reduction burning programs are heavily focused on burning around where people live. Um, they're very focused on trying to create that safe zone around them. Um, as we've seen, 
that's not perfect. You can still have fires burning through that. Um, but certainly the way we construct those communities and whether living that close to a dangerous environment is is allowable or suitable um, has to be considered. Um, there are another number of other options which um, uh, could be on the table. There are, are alternatives to hazard reduction burning. Um, one idea is something called green fire breaks, where you're essentially trying to replace flammable vegetation um, with a still ecologically functional non-flammable vegetation, um, whether it be grass that's grazed by wallabies, for example, around communities rather than being right up next to the forest. Um, so these are some of the ideas that are out there. And certainly that links into some of the trying to um, take on board some of the Indigenous knowledge around burning as well. Um, well, that's right. Um, certainly the way we manage forests now is different from the way it was managed before European colonisation. Uh, and there's, there's definitely a lot of lessons to be learned there. And bringing Aboriginal people into the conversation and allowing them to manage their land in the way it was probably benefits fire risk overall. And so what are some of the implications of not taking sufficient action in climate change and bushfire risk? I think the implications obviously are loss of a lot of iconic things we identify with Australia, including our bushland, our native animals. Um, that's going to change. We're going to get ecosystem shifts. Um, we see that in these, these current fires uh, with the areas that have burnt through the Australian Alps, um, where areas of eucalyptus delicatensis forest has been burnt multiple times over the last couple of decades, including um, this year. Uh, that species in particular cannot handle being burnt multiple times in high frequency. It will be gone. That ecosystem will not now regrow as delicatensis. It will shift to an acacia shrubland, something different. Um, we're seeing definite ecological shifts. Um, that's going to be one of the consequences of, of what's going to happen in the future. And that's not just happening in a small area. No. That, that's, that's landscape scale change. Yeah. You know, you stand up at the top of a, a peak in the Australian Alps and as far as the eye can see, used to be this species of eucalyptus delicatensis and in the future it will be a different ecosystem altogether. And of course that has cascading effects for everything that lives in the forest. So does this also, you know, we've talked about that we need to redesign our communities essentially, but I always think you know, there seems to be massive implications for Life as we know it, you know, what we were doing that affected the bee, we didn't realise that these actions would actually have such a catastrophic effect for, uh, effect for insects. But then actually those insects are hugely important for how we, you know, get our food through to um, a whole host of different things that we really depend on. So I suppose we know that it will be catastrophic for ecosystems, but then that will directly relate back to how easy it is for humans. Would you say that that's a oh, fair statement? Absolutely. The first thing that springs to mind is water catchments. Um, mm. We get our water from heavily vegetated catchments. Um, after these fires, we've now got trees burnt, we've got ground cover burnt, we've got bare soil that's going to wash into a, the water catchments, into the reservoirs, we're now going to have water issues. That's just an example of how much we rely on these systems and how, how these effects can impact us directly, even if we live in the city. Which will fairly... Um, exacerbate an already stretched water system. Absolutely. Mm. Thank you so much to Dr. Beck Harris and Dr. Grant Williamson for coming into the studio with us. And thank you, Kelsey, for all the work you've put into pre in preparing this show. Thanks. Okay, thank you. I'd also like to just say that this is That's What I Call Science from Edge Radio. Thank you to Meredith Castles for our production behind the scenes. And thank you to Olivia Holloway for keeping us in touch with everybody across social media. My name's Neil Chapman. Thank you for tuning in and, you know, get in touch if you've got any questions. Mm -hmm.